States will help you guide. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 05380, Gonzalez v. Carhart. General Clement. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Congress held six hearings over four different Congresses and heard from dozens of witnesses in determining that partial birth abortions are never medically necessary, pose health risks, and should be banned. Under familiar principles of deference to congressional fact-finding, those determinations should be upheld as long as they represent reasonable inferences based on substantial evidence in the congressional record. That standard is amply satisfied here. The evidence before Congress was clear that partial birth abortions were never medically necessary and that safe alternatives were always available such that no woman would be prevented from terminating her pregnancy. As a result, Congress was entitled to make a judgment in furthering its legitimate interests that they were going to ban a particularly gruesome procedure that blurred the line between abortion and infanticide. General Clement, couldn't a similar record be made with respect to what is the more common procedure, the D&E? That involves dismemberment of a fetus inside the womb. So assuming you're right that it is constitutional for Congress to ban the D&X proceeding, wouldn't the same reasoning apply? Couldn't Congress make similar findings with respect to what is the most common method for second trimester abortions? I don't think so, Justice Ginsburg, and I think that this Court's precedents, in particular the Danforth case, would stand as an obstacle to that piece of legislation, because in Danforth this Court struck down an effort to ban what was then the majority method of inducing a second-term abortion. And I think in the same way, there's quite a different situation when Congress comes in and tries to deal with the primary abortion method in the second trimester. Here, though, Congress didn't go after the dog, so to speak. It went after the tail, this very aberrant procedure, atypical procedure, and the numbers are hard to come by. But I don't think anybody suggests that the D&X procedure is anything more than a very small minority of second trimester abortions. And so I do think — Even though we're told by some of the medical briefs that the procedures are basically the same, they start out in the same way, and that the difference — the differences are not large in particular cases. Well, Justice Ginsburg, let me make a couple of points in response to that. I think, taking it at the broader level first, I think there is one very important difference between these two procedures that led Congress to ban one and allow the other to stand, and that is whether fetal demise takes place in utero, which is, of course, the hallmark of all abortions, or whether fetal demise, the lethal act, takes place when the fetus is more than halfway out of the mother. Now, as to there's a suggestion, I think, most particularly by respondents in the second case, that there really is no meaningful difference between those two procedures. And with respect, I just don't think the record supports that. If you look at the record in this case, it's very clear in the district court opinion that you have some doctors, and examples would be plaintiff's expert, Dr. Cranin, or one of the Nebraska plaintiffs, Dr. Vibicar. They go in, in each and every case, and try to perform a dismemberment or D&E procedure. And because they're trying to perform the D&E procedure, they need to dilate the cervix only modestly. And so Dr. Cranin, for example, his testimony is he only dilates the cervix two centimeters or two and a half centimeters. Now, in contrast, you have other doctors, and here the examples I would point to are two of the plaintiff's experts, Dr. Chasen and Dr. Fredrickson. They, in every single case, set out to perform the D&X procedure. 
And that has material differences in, in, for example, the dilation regimen that they use. And so Dr. Fredrickson, for example, uses multiple sets of laminaria to dilate the cervix, and she gets a much greater degree of dilation, five to six centimeters of dilation. And, of course, not only do they set out to perform different procedures, but they, in fact, perform different procedures. So the evidence here again reflects that Dr. Vibicar, for example, in 100 percent of the cases, ends up performing a dismemberment procedure or a DNE procedure. For Dr. Cranin, it's 99 percent. Now, by contrast, Dr. Chasen and Dr. Fredrickson, when they set out to perform a DNX procedure, they're successful in their objective less often. The records, they're different numbers for different doctors, but it seems that at most they can achieve their objective about a third of the time. Were those, those doctors testified in the congressional hearings or in the Eighth, eighth Circuit or in the Ninth Circuit or the Second Circuit? But I, I, there are so many doctors here. Which right. of the two that you're referring to that uh, do not dilate the cervix fully? Did they testify in, the, in any of the district court cases? They did. They, they, they did, Justice Kennedy. And, I mean, in particular, Dr. Cranin is uh, an expert. I think his deposition was taken or his, his testimony was taken principally in the California case, but it was introduced in all three cases as part of the evidentiary record. Dr. Vibicar is one of the plaintiffs in this particular case. And Dr. Chasen and Dr. Fredrickson was also the, the, — their testimony was in this the record, I think, in all three cases. All right, so, so my, my — my, Going through this record, I compare it with Stenhart, with what's in Congress. We have two cases here, and isn't it a fair conclusion that there are, in each case, uh, before Congress and in here, there are some doctors who think this is safe and some doctors who think it isn't safe? And if you look at the uh, sort of I counted by numbers, I, I guess if you look by lines of testimony or by different doctors, interestingly enough, it seems to me there are more doctors in these two cases and in front of Congress who said it is not safe than there were when we considered the other case. Uh, and there are fewer doctors who say it is safe even with the other case. So I don't know if you're supposed to count doctors or what. My question would be, if this, do we owe more deference to a congressional finding or to Congress than we owe to a state legislature? What is, I mean, I take it a state legislature is democratically elected. And don't we owe similar deference to both? Well, well, Justice Breyer, I think you certainly owe deference to both. I think — Well, if we owe deference to both, and I would have thought that we did, then I think in the Nebraska case, despite the deference that was owed, the Court came to the conclusion that the statute of Nebraska was unconstitutional because it lacked an exception for the health of the mother, something that came from preceding cases. So if giving deference to Nebraska, we reach that conclusion there, and if the deference that is owed is the same, and if the evidence is about the same on both sides, how can we reach a different conclusion here? Well, Justice Breyer, I mean, obviously I'm in a certain deficit to you in, in discussing what this Court held in the Stenberg opinion, which you wrote. But my reading of that opinion is that this Court did not focus on what was before the Nebraska legislature, but this Court focused on what the District Court found. And in particular, in the critical part of the opinion, which would be Section 2A of the opinion, as I read the opinion, what this Court did is it confronted Nebraska's argument that the DNX procedure was not, in fact, safer. And the first thing this Court did is say, well, that argument faces quite a burden because the District Court made a contrary finding. 
And then this Court, in 2A1 of the opinion, referenced that finding and four different times cited the district court record. And, and then so on and so forth. It then noted the various eight arguments were made by the State and its amici to the contrary. And as I read the opinion, basically said the latter, the objections, don't outweigh the former, the findings. Now, I think if you compare the record before the courts and before Congress, bet- bet- compare that to what was before the district court in Stenberg, I think there's a much more robust factual record here. If you look at the Stenberg case. But General Clement, are, are not some of the findings by Congress clearly erroneous? For example, there is a statement that no current uh, medical schools provide instruction in the procedure. Now, that's clearly wrong, isn't it? Well, I mean, specifically what Congress found in that finding was that none of them provided as part of the curriculum. And I think what the record here clearly reflects is, you know, I don't know that the idea of a curriculum, I don't know exactly what Congress had in mind, but clearly as a matter of sort of what you teach residents. Do you think that finding is correct? I mean, I don't know if it's correct based on the curriculum point. But let me, let me say this, well, Supposing there was a lot of evidence introduced in the district court that there were schools like Yale and New York University that did include this as part of the curriculum. Could the district court disregard that finding and make a contrary finding? I think if the evidence in the district court were overwhelming to the contra- overwhelmingly to the contrary, I think that the, that the district court could effectively undermine that one finding. I don't think in this well, case anything finding, turned. On other findings, is there a different standard of review of what the district court found as opposed to what Congress found? Well, Justice Stevens, I would answer you this way. I mean, you might first want to isolate those situations where if the district court is addressing something, an issue that just wasn't before Congress at all, but it's somehow relevant and makes factual findings, I suppose the district court is entitled to the normal kind of deference on review. But I think if you have situations, which you have in this case, where the district court heard some of the same witnesses who testified before Congress and before the district court, and the district court makes a different credibility finding than the Congress made, I I don't think that's a basis for the district court to be able to overcome the contrary finding of Congress. I don't understand Congress to have made credibility findings. As I read the — I read the whole finding. There were six or seven pages of findings. And I don't find a single reference in those findings to the performance of a, an abortion on a non-viable fetus. All of the language in the findings seems to be referring to viable fetuses just inches away from becoming vile, uh, persons. I don't think you find, even find the word fetus in, in those findings. The findings as opposed to the text of the statute. Sure. Justice Stevens, I think I need to clarify an important point there, which is to say the statute didn't focus on viable versus non-viable because it applies on both sides of the viability line. I'm talking about the findings. Uh, And is there a single word in the findings that refers to a viable fetus? It it refers to a non-viable fetus. I, I, I don't think there is, Justice Stevens, but I wouldn't find that at all remarkable in a statute that applies and bans certain procedures without regard to whether the procedure is applied to a viable or a non-viable fetus. And when Congress does make specific findings that the procedure that it's banning would have the effect of allowing a, preventing a lethal act on a fetus just inches from being born, well, it's, it's not, not preven- referring it, — May it's, I interrupt? It's sure. not preventing the lethal act. It is requiring that the lethal act be performed prior to any part of the delivery, because there's no doubt there will be a lethal act. That's very important. I agree with the you. The only issue is when it may be performed. Well, the, the issue is whether. Correct? Yes, but the issue is very important because it's the issue as to whether it's going to be performed in utero or when the child is more than halfway outside of the womb. And that, of the course, corresponds. more than halfway out. 
I'm sorry? Whether the fetus is more than halfway out. And some of these fetuses, I understand, in the procedure are only four or five inches long. They're very different from f- uh, fully formed uh, uh, babies. Uh, Justice Stevens, again, I mean, you're right. Know, when, it's, when it's halfway out, I guess you could call it either a child or a fetus. It's sort of half and half, isn't it? I, I think you could use either terminology, Justice Scalia. My point is nothing turns on the terminology. I mean, uh, the, the terminology that Congress chose to use is a living fetus. I think the point, though, is that when, when, the, when fetal demise is induced in utero, whatever else you think about that procedure, that is classically an abortion, as it's been always understood. But when fetal demise is induced when the, when, the, when the living fetus is over halfway outside of the womb, then I think Congress Which is, is going to be going to suffer a demise in seconds anyway. Well, it may be seconds, it may be hours, it depends on, because even, no, even a pre- but, but do you not agree that it has no chance of survival? If in we're most t- cases. If we're talking about pre-viability, then, then yes. by definition, chances are it won't survive. That's right. But again, I, I don't think that, you know, that, that anything and in this Congress act has made the judgment that it is far preferable to ensure that fetal demise takes place before any delivery begins. That's the big issue. Well, I, I'm not sure if it's whether uh, that's a fair that's a fair summary. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the line isn't that fetal demise has to be done before any delivery begins. But the basic point of this statute is to draw a bright line between a procedure that induces fetal demise in utero and one that, where the lethal act occurs when the child or the fetus, whichever you want to call it, is more than halfway outside of the mother's womb. Would it, would it be lawful or would it be infanticide to deliver the fetus entirely and just let it expire without any attempt to, uh, uh, to keep it alive? Well, in the post-viability context, it would clearly be uh, it would clearly be infanticide. I think in the pre-viability context, if you have a complete delivery, but, you know, the child isn't going to survive, I don't think it would be infanticide to necessarily let the child expire. But I do think, by contrast, if somebody tried to, with, with, with the fetus, you know, perfectly alive and in the hours that it might have to live, if somebody came in and ripped its head open, I think we'd call that murder. And, in General fact, Congress Clement, passed another statute to make that That's not what this case is about, because I think that you have recognized quite appropriately that we're not talking about whether any fetus will be preserved by this legislation. The only question that you're raising is whether Congress can ban a certain method of performing an abortion. So anything about infanticide, babies, all that is just beside the point because what this bans is a method of abortion, it doesn't preserve any fetus because you just do it inside the womb instead of outside. Justice Ginsburg, that's right, but I don't think that's to trivialize Congress's interest in maintaining a bright line between abortion and infanticide. And the way I would illustrate it is that that line, even if you might think it has a a temporal line in the sense that viability versus previability is relevant, it clearly has a spatial dimension as well. And the best illustration of that, I think, is think about a lawful post-viability abortion. There's a problem with the mother's health. There's a problem with her life. So it's a lawful post-viability abortion. I don't think anybody thinks that the law is or should be indifferent to whether, in that case, fetal demise takes place in utero or outside the mother's womb. The one is abortion, the other is murder. And I think that just recognizes that even in the post-viability context, 
you have a very important line, which is a spatial line, and that line is basically in womb, outside of womb. And what Congress tried to do in this statute is to draw that line and differentiate between one procedure where fetal demise takes place well, in utero. in this case were limited to post-viability abortions, it would be a different matter. But isn't it so that the vast majority of these abortions are going to be performed pre-viability? I think that's probably right, Justice Ginsburg, but I think the point I would make is that Congress has an interest in maintaining the spatial line between infanticide and abortion, even with respect to pre-viability fetuses. And that's true for at least two reasons. So, so if, if I see what you're driving at in terms of the procedure. We're focusing on a universe where the fetus is not going to survive no matter what, right? Right. Okay. So we're not talking about anyone being born and living. They're not going to. And well, we, I mean, with this caveat that the statute that's, does apply that's both. That's the area of focus. Right. Now, Congress has said that the doctor, you can achieve that result through method A, but not through method B. And you're saying Congress had good reason for doing that. I take it Congress also agrees that if method B, which they don't want, were to be necessary for the safety or health of the mother, the Constitution would require it being done. I didn't see anything here about Congress disagreeing with that. Oh, I think that's right, Justice yeah, right. I think this, right, Congress took this correct. Court's they Stenberg decision fine. as a given and as fine. a starting point. Okay. They make a finding that although we don't disagree with that, we don't think it's ever necessary for the health or safety of the mother. That's where we are. Now, as I looked at the record, I see many, many, many doctors telling Congress and everybody else that it is necessary and safer. And I see other doctors telling Congress primarily, but in court too, that it isn't necessary ever for safety. And so if medical opinion is divided, and I'm not advocating what I'm about to say, I just want to know your reaction. If medical opinion is divided, why wouldn't it be up to this court or could this court say, uh, this use of this procedure, we enjoin the statute to permit its use, but only where appropriate medical opinion finds it necessary for the safety or health of the mother. Now, if Congress is right, there will be no such case, so it's no problem. But if Congress is wrong, then the doctor will be able to perform the procedure, and Congress couldn't object to that because the Congress isn't worried about I mean, Congress, uh, then, then Congress was wrong. They, they agreed that we had a health or safety uh, exception. With respect, Justice Breyer, here's the problem with that way of approaching the statute. That might be a permissible way of approaching it if what the evidence on the other side here was that, well, there, you know, there are cause-specific reasons why you need this procedure. There are particular conditions where you need this procedure. But that's not the evidence on the other side. What their doctors say, the doctors who perform this DNX procedure, the Dr. Chasens, the Dr. Fredericksons, what they will tell you is that in every single case, the DNX procedure is better and safer and they want to do it. And so it doesn't make — I mean, Congress can't pass a statute that bans Procedure A, and that ban doesn't apply any time a doctor prefers Procedure oh, A. No, it, is, it just wouldn't be a question of a doctor's preference. You would have to refer back to prior cases. 
And what the prior cases talk about, including Stenberg, is not that a doctor simply has a preference, but rather that there has to be a significant body of medical opinion that says that this is a safer procedure and necessary for the safety of the mother. Now, where that's true, the Court has previously said that the Constitution protects the right. And I don't see anything in what Congress says that wants to change that law. They simply have a different view of the facts. Well, they do have a different view of the facts, and I guess so the question So if they have a different view of the facts, why can't we leave it up to whatever facts develop? If there is an appropriate body of medical opinion that does, in fact, believe this is necessary for the health of the mother, so be it, and the abortion could be performed, and the injunction would say that. Well, I, I think Otherwise if, not. If this Court rejects the facial challenge to this statute, it is still going to be open for litigants in the future to try to identify specific conditions where this procedure is the safer alternative. Can you tell me the uh, hypothetical instance in which an as-applied challenge could be brought uh, if we sustain the statute on its face? The uh, procedure has to take place within 24, 48, 72 hours. Uh, how, how would an as-applied challenge take place? You know, I, I read all the, uh, the doctor's testimony in these cases, hundreds of pages. Um, and I'm familiar with the area generally, but it, it takes a while to get up to speed. I don't know you could, if you could just go to a district judge and say, well, I, I, I need an order. Uh, the, the judge would take, have to take many, many hours to, to understand this. Oh, Justice Kennedy, what I think I have in mind principally would be a pre-enforcement challenge that was an as-applied challenge. And what I have in mind, and, you know, that's something that there is in other areas of the law. Steffel against Thompson is an example. But what you would have in mind is a doctor who has standing under this Court's abortion jurisprudence would come in and say, look, in my practice, I've seen that this procedure would be particularly useful in dealing with preeclampsia or placental previa or some why, condition. Why, why isn't that already in the record in, in the Ninth Circuit, in the Second Circuit, in the Eighth Circuit, in the, in the district court's proceedings in those circuits? Well, there's an effort to make that showing. I don't think that it's been a successful effort to make that showing. In fact, I think if you look at the findings of the district courts in these cases, two of the three district courts found that there was no particular condition where the DNX abortion was medically necessary or or had marginal safety benefits. In this case, the Nebraska case, the district court identified only two conditions, preeclampsia combined with maternal cancer and uh, placenta previa. And as to those particular findings, as we point out in our reply brief, there are problems with each of those findings. General, well, I think I'm just thinking, uh, trying to, to uh, imagine how an uh, as-applied challenge would be really much different from what we've seen already. Well, I, I don't think — I mean, you know, they, they've challenged everything, including every application of the statute, and they've tried to pick off some particular conditions. What I'm imagining is in the future you might have you might have additional evidence, you might have additional uh, experience with doctors, and they might come in and target their challenge to particular conditions and but try to say. General, General Clement, conditions don't show up in the abstract. It, wouldn't it often be the case that it depends on the vulnerability of the particular patient? And you couldn't bring a pre-enforcement challenge as to that. I mean, if it's a question of hemorrhaging, it's it's a combination of what the condition is and the vulnerability of the particular patient. And I don't see how that could be tested in advance. 
Well, Justice Ginsburg, my understanding is that even when you talk about an idiosyncratic condition, I mean, the doctors that perform these abortions perform, you know, hundreds of them a year, and they can identify those conditions, and they have names for those conditions, and I think it would be amenable to being, bring, bringing a more as-applied challenge. General, do you understand the scope of this statute to be different than the scope of the statute at issue in Stenberg? Focusing in particular on the deliberate and intentional language? I, I certainly do, Mr. Chief Justice, and I think that this statute, unlike the Nebraska statute, clearly uses an anatomical landmark approach that is based in the text of the statute and clearly d- distinguishes between the DNA procedure on the one hand and the DNX procedure on the other hand. But isn't it quite independent of the anatomical approach that the, that the health exception is denied? I mean, that's an, that, that does not depend on the anatomical approach. The anatomical approach uh, may well be an answer at, at the facial challenge stage to problems of vagueness, for example. But the health exception problem is not affected by that. And the, the difficulty that I have with, with your argument that somehow the health exception issue should be left to an as-applied challenge is the statement in Stenberg, and I, it's on 938, uh, and I'm quoting but where substantial medical authority supports the proposition that banning a particular abortion procedure could endanger women's health, Casey requires the statute to include a health exception where the procedure is necessary in appropriate medical judgment for the preservation, <coughs> excuse me, of the life or health of the mother. Now, your position, it seems to me, requires us to do one of three things. Either we, we overrule Stenberg in that respect, uh, or we, we, we find, I don't know how, but we, we might find, well, in this case there is no substantial medical authority, and therefore on the face of the statute there seems to be no impediment in the Stenberg statement, or three, we say, well, there seems to be a tension between the, the showing of substantial medical authority, which occurred in the, in the litigation in these cases, in the findings made by Congress, and under those circumstances, in effect, we are required to ignore the, the, the record in the cases and, and go with Congress's apparently contrary judgment. Which of the three do we take? Well, I mean, we would urge you to take any one of take three. Take all three. I mean, you know, no, but, seri- but seriously. But in fairness, I mean, we, you know, we have an obligation to defend the statute, so our first, you know, our, our first effort would be to say we distinguish the Stenberg Okay, but the, the, the problem, I guess focus the problem this way. The, 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 the Stenberg opinion talks about substantial medical authority as triggering this requirement for a statutory element. That problem is not focused simply by saying Congress made some findings and the district court made other findings and Congress should prevail. Uh, the fact is uh, the substantial medical judgment finding, I would suppose, is satisfied by the, by the, the record in the district courts in, in these cases. Uh, this is not one doctor's idiosyncratic judgment. Uh, and, and, and a court could reasonably find, it seems to me, that there is substantial medical judgment. If we are going to defer, as you say, we should defer to Congress, haven't we got to overrule that statement? 
I don't think so, Justice Souter. And let me just, I mean, I'd like to save some time for rebuttal, but let me try to answer it this way, which is, our, you know, our way of looking at Stenberg is Stenberg really doesn't address what you do when there are congressional findings. And there's some tension between Stenberg and Turner on this, because Stenberg seems to suggest, well, when there's a doubt, the kind of doubt that would normally get you past summary judgment, you defer to the doctors. And Turner seems to suggest, when you have a doubt, you know, conflicting evidence, the kind of doubt that might get you past summary judgment normally, you defer to Congress. And it has to be one or the other. You can't, you can't go both ways. You can't go opposite ways. And we would say resolve that tension by when there is congressional findings, something that you obviously didn't have to confront in Stenberg, defer to the congressional approach. If Stenberg means something contrary, and even in the face of congressional findings, that you have to defer to a minority opinion of, of doctors um, and, you know, kind of invert what would normally be the way of approaching it, we think then that would be inconsistent with this Court's decision in Casey, among others, and you should revisit Stenberg to that effect, to that extent. Thank you. Thank you, General. Ms. Smith? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The government throughout this case has quarreled with the plaintiff's statement of Stenberg and Congress quarreled clearly with the district court findings. But their real argument here is with this court and the court's ruling in Stenberg, particularly in light of the congressional findings that are, that are frankly unsupported by either the congressional record or the additional evidence presented to the district courts. The only course here that preserves the independence of the judiciary, that exemplifies the importance of stare decisis, not to mention the only course that will protect women from needless risks of uterine perforation, infertility, sepsis, and hemorrhage, is to hold this act unconstitutional. Can, can you tell me, um, I, I didn't find it in the materials, and maybe the statistics aren't available. In the cases where intact DNA or, or DNX are performed, um, in the period, I guess, what, 16 through 20, 21st, 22nd weeks, uh, in how many of those instances, do you have any idea in how many of those instances uh, is there a serious health risk to the mother that requires the procedure as opposed to simply being an elective procedure? If what Your Honor, we, are there any statistics the, on that? No, in terms of the underlying medical conditions, there really aren't, Your Honor, and it varies dramatically according to the practice of the physician. If a physician is in a high-risk OBGYN practice, he or she is much more likely to encounter patients with serious underlying medical conditions, such as the ones that the doctors have testified in, about in this case: uh, the liver disease, uh, kidney disease, heart. Uh, cardiovascular disease, cancer of the placenta, bleeding placenta previa, all of these issues that, uh, and underlying conditions that make the intact and the risks that are reduced by the intact DNA particularly important. We have, we have no evidence, uh, in, either in the record before the court or Congress as to how often that situation arises? No, we don't, Your Honor. We know that in some practices it's quite frequent. In some practices it's not as frequent because those are mostly hospital-based practices. Um, but on the other hand, there's extensive evidence in this case, um, much more evidence, frankly, uh, Your Honor, Justice Breyer, than there, than there was in the Stenberg case, 
of the uh, I, I, and I have just one other question yes. it, yeah. it's generally related to the first okay um, if there is substantial evidence that um, other procedures or alternate procedures are available uh, alternate to DNX alternate to intact DNA um, is your response that although they're available as a matter of science, as a matter of, um, of, of, of medical expertise, they're not available because hospitals don't allow the patients to be admitted? I was going to ask that same question to the government. Um, because there, there's some indication in the record that uh, certain hospitals just don't, don't admit patients for this purpose, which is, goes back to my earlier question. I was wondering if that's because it's surely elective. Because it's what's because it's purely elective and, and, and not medically necessary. No, Your Honor. That many, many hospitals throughout the United States refuse to provide any abortions whatsoever as just a, a, a blanket rule. There are some that will provide abortions in certain, uh, in certain circumstances where the woman is obtaining the abortion because of a certain medical condition. Then there are women who are obtaining an abortion uh, because they have chosen that that's the best course for them, who also have underlying medical conditions. So if you're a woman who has chosen to obtain an abortion and you have an underlying uh, cardiac disease, for example, we had a case like this in Louisiana. The hospital refused to do the abortion because her chance of dying from the underlying medical condition was not over 50 percent. So the availability of hospital services is is – uh, somewhat unrelated to this case, but it is it is quite um, limited. In some well, it might be related yeah. in the sense that the government's argument that there are alternate mechanisms uh, is not a, a practical alternative. I was going to ask the government about that. On, on the other hand, the fact that any number of hospitals uh, don't allow the procedure is also indicated, indication that there's a medical opinion against it. No, not at all, Your Honor. The medical opinion in those cases is against abortion whatsoever and a refusal to pro- use one's fil- facilities to provide any abortion so of in any ter- kind, in ter- not about a, any particular procedure. I'm sorry, Justice Breyer. I'd, I'd like to get your characterization and the government's of the state of the record. I asked my law clerk, basically, mm-hmm. to go look up every statement that was made in four forums. First was the first Stenberg case. Second was Congress. Third is the seth, one of the cases here. Uh, and the fourth is the other case here. Now, my own impression of that is if you're talking about the medical need for such a case, that is, for, for intact DNA, that there is a risk attached if you don't use it in some instances. The fewest number of statements for that proposition was in the first Stenberg. Yes. More statements in Congress, the more statements is, that you, the, the, the doctors who say I need this procedure for safety. There are many more in this There case. are many more in this case than there were. In these two cases, there are many more than there were in Congress, and in Congress there are many more than they were in First Stenberg. That's right. In now, if we look to the other side of the coin, yes. the doctors who say, no, it isn't safe, there I'd have to say there are probably many more in Congress then there are uh, uh, there, the doctors say it isn't safe. There are probably many more in Congress. Than there, and then there are some in these cases too, and there is hardly any in uh, Stenberg. Not too many. Well, there's those against many, you, in other words. There are many letters written to Congress letters. that are in the record. Right. In terms of live witnesses, Your Honor, there were um, in Congress eight live witnesses 
that testified all together. Right. So I, I'm, I'm left yeah. with a record where yeah. I guess you have a subjective characterization that there's at least as much evidence in these cases supporting you and as much in Congress supporting you as there was in the first Stenberg case. But Congress made this finding. So what am I to do with the finding? Right. Well, the important point, Your Honor, is that even if, if the Court applied the highest level of deference under Turner, the findings would be rejected and must be rejected, as all three district courts held, because they're simply unreasonable, even under a Turner standard. Ms. Smith, was, yes. the, was the statement of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists before Congress? Yes, Your Honor, it was, as was the, um, the brief that was filed, the amicus brief that was filed in this case in Stenberg was before Congress, um, and also testimony from numerous physicians um, in, in the form of letter. In terms of live witnesses, uh, there were simply not that many. Oh, You, you, you will give you an extra 30 seconds to uh, <laughs> That's proceed. That's fine, Your Honor. Um, I've lost track of my train of thought, though, I think. I think well, what we, I was uh, saying was there were eight witnesses who testified live. The question, basically, and, I yes. think you might have been going after yes. is, is uh, I was saying that I, I agreed with you in that there's more evidence supporting your side in these cases than there was before Congress, than there was in first Stenberg. Yes. But still there was a finding in Congress, and there wasn't a finding in the Nebraska legislature. And so does that fact of the finding being in Congress and not in the Nebraska legislature, what kind of legal difference does that make? And, Your Honor, what I would say in this case, it makes none. While it's an extremely interesting academic question about the level of deference that should be applied in this kind of circumstance, here it really is academic, because under even under the Turner standard, if applied in the way that Turner actually applied deference, to carefully review the findings in light of the evidence in Congress and, again, in light of the evidence in the district court. May, may I ask you this yes. question about what you think we should do? If I thought the evidence did support the conclusion that it's never medically necessary, it merely, the evidence merely supports the proposition that a doctor has to be a lot more careful if he goes one way rather than the other because there are more risks involved in one procedure rather than the other. Would that be sufficient to support the uh, — I can see the argument that the intact delivery may have less risk of, what, of complications and so forth mm-hmm. without it not necessarily being absolutely necessary. Well, I think there's a, there's been some confusion about the word necessary, and it's been used sometimes to talk about whether there are other procedures that could be used, as opposed to the determination that it is the safest procedure that reduces significantly the risk of very serious complications, not the risks of minor complications. I guess so, that gets back yes. to the point earlier. I mean, do you agree with the discussion earlier that this act uh, is not going to prevent abortions? Um, no, not at all, Your Honor. It's, I, the issue of the scope and breadth of the law is, um, I think, the evidence clearly shows that this is a very broad law that applies to D&E abortions. And contrary to 
what the Solicitor General said about the intent of abortions, uh, abortion providers like Dr. Vibacher and others. They actually, ha- their intent is always um, to remove the fetus as intact as possible, and the district courts have recognized that as, as uh, an intent that's covered under the terms of the Act. But what, and, what degree yeah. of marginal impact on safety do you think is necessary to override the state's interest? I mean, if you have complications under the uh, DNE procedure in, say, 10 percent of the cases, complications under DNX in 9.99 percent of the cases, is that marginal benefit in safety enough to override the state's articulated interests? I don't believe a marginal benefit in safety is enough, and I don't believe that's what we have here. The testimony from over uh, from at least 11 board-certified OBGYNs from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists is that the reduction in risk is significant and that it reduces the risk of serious complications, such as uterine perforation, which can lead to hysterectomy. And but, I, but I thought your submission so, earlier was that we don't have any record evidence about how often the complications arise. So it's, it's hard to get a handle on exactly what the difference is in terms of safety under your submission. We don't have a quantification of the safety. What we have is the clinical experience of major leading physicians in the field who've testified that they've used both procedures. In fact, many of them have testified that they've perforated uteruses in non-intact DNEs and they've never perforated a uterus in an intact DNE. And that, in fact, is borne out by the Chasen study, a very small study uh, with a very small numbers, but it shows all the serious complications are in the non-intact group. If we could yes. go back to the first question that the Chief asked you, you said, yes, it will prevent abortions because of this in uncertain line between the DNX and the DNE. Is there a way that Congress could have written the statute that would have insulated the physician who's performing a DNE? Absolutely, Your Honor. I think that the blueprint that this Court laid out that certainly is suggested in Justice O'Connor's uh, concurrence in Stenberg um, was rejected by Congress. She references three statutes that if they had included a health exception, she thinks would have been constitutional. They all include the word intact. I think there's another narrower construction of the Act, too, that is, that is possible. Um, the, adding in the word intact, reading in the word intact, it seems to me, is not a reasonable interpretation of the statute as it is. But certainly Congress could have done that, and other states have done it. But Congress set out not to do that. Uh, may, may I ask you to, to, to focus on, on one particular problem that I think is, is implicated by Justice Ginsburg's question? If I understood you correctly a moment ago, and I think this is in your briefs too, you said that the, the definitional problem uh, is that doctors always set out to do an intact procedure if they can, uh, because it involves less risk to the mother uh, from, from acts performed inside. Uh, and if that's the case, then it would be, I guess, in the real world, very difficult for Congress to define uh, a, a, a difference between DNE and DNX because the intention is always, as you understand it, to, to have an, an intact uh, result. 
your your brother on the other side, the Solicitor General, says um, there certainly is is testimony to the effect that that is not so. Uh, that doctors who intend to perform a DNE simply intend at the beginning to have a lesser degree of dilation, which will force them to do the DNE and not have a totally intact uh, procedure. Would you comment on what I think is the factual difference between you and the Solicitor General there? Yes, Your Honor. I- the, the problem with the law is that because it's not limited to intact, it would, in fact, cover uh, the procedures that are performed by physicians who intend to perform uh, a procedure as intact as possible, but simply don't no, expect I, that. I, I understand yes. that, but yes. could, could you start simply with the... The, 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 the factual predicate for your argument and his argument, you seem to be starting from, if I, if I understand the two of you correctly, you seem to be starting from basically different factual assumptions. Could you, could you start by commenting on that? Yes. The doctors perform the same dilation protocols, whether they're going to perform a DNE or an intact DNE. And that's true for Dr. Chasen and Dr. Westhoff, who perform both intact and non-intact pr- procedures. I thought the evidence was that you're looking for a different degree of dilation if you're pr- intending to perform DNE than if you're and you're looking for a greater degree if you're intending to perform a DNX. It doesn't play out that way. Di- doctors do have different dilation protocols, but they're often looking for as much dilation as they can get. On Is your submission hand, that there, there, there aren't different dilation protocols if you're intending a DNE and if you're intending a DNX? It, var- it varies by doctor. For example, Dr. Carhart uses the same dilation protocol whether he's going to do an intact or a non-intact. Other doctors might try to do more dilation. And the doctors, importantly, can't control the amount of dilation they get. So a decision happens. Well, they may not be able to control it in, in an absolute sense, but can't they go about it in a way uh, that would tend to produce less rather than more dilation? Not, they not can't guarantee results, but couldn't, couldn't they at least start uh, with, with, with a, I don't know how to put it, a, a, a procedure that would be likely to produce less rather than more and hence come within the, the, the safe harbor, if you will, of the statute? Well, they're always looking for a minimal amount of dilation. Then people who chose to do another day of dilation, for example, that could add additional dilation. But for the first day of dilation, no, Your Honor. They don't seek more or less over one day. They might do a second day Well, you say they, they don't. Day. My question is, can yeah. they? And, and we, the record may not no. show this. I'm not asking you to, to answer the impossible, but do, do, do we have evidence that would indicate that they can or that they can't? Not, not in the first day of dilation, no. They can't control how much dilation is going to occur. They need a minimal amount, and they're not going to shoot for less than that. Can, can you tell and us where to look in the record? For the evidence on that? Um, each doctor testifies about their own dilation protocols, Your Honor, and I believe that um, that's in the Eighth Circuit appendix, um, those, the, those portions of that testimony, and are cited more specifically in the Eighth Circuit briefs, which goes more into the factual detail, Your Honor, but I don't have the sites right oh. now. I'm sorry. Uh, if, if there were a health exception, yes. the health of the woman, um, would that obviate the vagueness and overbreath problems that you bring up? Because then after it would say to the doctor, you put the health of your patients first. And if you think that it's riskier for her health 
to do it one way than another way, then you pick the safer way. If you had that, then wouldn't the, the concerns about overbreath fade? No, not if this is not limited to intact, Your Honor, because then you would be limiting D&E abortions, which is 95 percent of all abortions, to circumstances where the doctor could prove that it was, in fact, the safest procedure. And we've had uh, doctors testify um, in trial, for example, that they refused to describe even intact or regular D&Es to their patients because they believe induction is always safer. So those doctors, I think, would still be at risk, and it would put uh, 95 percent of second trimester abortions at risk in that case uh, to prosecution for performing a D&E when you should have been performing an, an induction. Do you think the, uh, on the same issue, I think, at the, the addition of the deliberately and intentionally language in the Congressional Act uh, addresses that concern? No, Your Honor, because actually that same language is in the Stenberg the Nebraska statute, it also was targeted at deliberately intentionally. I do think that if um, there is a construction that would narrow the law to a limited amount of intact DNEs, if you read the for the purpose of language in the statute, um, to be performing an overt act for the sole purpose of completing uh, delivery, um, then, or rather, I'm sorry, uh, for the purpose of um, performing an overt act that causes fetal demise, that does not facilitate delivery of the statute. I'm wondering. Suppose, suppose that maybe this might help. Suppose the physician testifies that. Uh, I, I wanted to do a non-intact, an in utero uh, D&E. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's, that was my intent. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I always want to do. Uh, in this case, um, I had an intact uh, delivery and had no other choice. Uh, are you saying that we could interpret the statute to say that that is not the prohibited criminal intent? He is immune from prosecution in that case. No, I don't believe that's the line that could be drawn, Your Honor, because Anyone who does a DNE is intending to remove the fetus as intact as possible and always uh, can have the intent to go to the anatomical landmark that's here. I'm suggesting a different interpretation that uses the for the purpose of uh, language where it says for the purpose of performing an overt act that the person knows will kill the partially delivered living fetus. If that language was interpreted to be for the sole purpose of performing fetal demise at that point, rather than what the doctors do, which is perform the action that causes fetal demise in order to facilitate delivery of the fetus. So if it's not to facilitate delivery of the fetus... Give me one instance in in which your proposed interpretation would work in the real world. Well, there are allegations in the congressional record, uh, for example, and referenced in Justice Thomas's dissent, um, by Nurse Schaefer, Dr. Pamela Smith, about circumstances where the physician actually holds the fetus in the woman's body in order to cause fetal demise, rather than causing fetal demise because it's a, uh, an integral part of removal of the fetus from the woman's uterus. 
And those circumstances would be banned under that interpretation. But I want to get back to the Turner point, if I may, for a minute, the, the issue of, of deference to congressional findings. Well, well just on that last point, I mean, I'm, we're interested, of course, in different interpretations, but it yeah. just seems to me that your interpretation would have very little practical effect. Well, it would um, it would ban certainly a certain type of intact procedure that was discussed and I think is the image many people have of, quote, partial birth abortion, frankly, that this is something that's done gratuitously, not as an integral part of making a procedure the safest for the woman and avoiding instrumentation and avoiding perforations and hysterectomies, which are serious complications that, though rare, when they occur, they are catastrophic and life-changing and disastrous. So the numbers are not high of any complications, but the complications when they occur are, are devastating. And this is what the doctors are experiencing when they perform intact DNEs, that they're not having these types of complications. So if I could move to the deference point, I would like to talk a little bit about deference to congressional findings, because there's significant authority from this Court, of course, saying that where there are danger signs of constitutional risks, as the Court recently uh, said in Randall versus Sorrell, that the Court must independently and carefully review congressional findings. Um, and the Court has rejected findings that attempted to change uh, either by findings of fact or legal findings that attempted to change a constitutional standard. But in any case, the findings in this case are, are simply unreasonable and not supported by the evidence. If you go to the findings themselves, the ultimate finding in 14.0, which claims that it is actually relying on the preceding findings, it says, for these reasons, Congress finds that partial birth abortion is never medically indicated. And then you go backwards and look at the reasons. The reasons are the findings that are not defended by the government, that were not defended by the government witnesses, and that are, are, are blatantly false, except for perhaps one of them. Um, there are findings of their, that, that partial birth abortion poses serious risks. The government witnesses agreed that this was not true. There are findings that uh, partial birth abortion is not taught in medical schools. Of course, we know that is simply not true. It's an integral part of abortion training at major medical institutions like Cornell, Columbia, Yale, NYU, um, North, Northwestern, etc. Um, it says that abortion, uh, partial birth abortion is a disfavored uh, practice among abortion providers. That is absolutely not true. Um, and it says that there are no comparative studies. We know now that is not true because the Chasen study has come out and is, a, is the first study of its kind to try to evaluate um, the differences between intact and non-intact. It is still true that there are no controlled studies. There's no randomized clinical trial. But if that were the standard, no new and safer abortion procedures could ever be developed. Um, turning back, Your Honors, um, to the health issue. Could I ask you just yes. on one thing? This, the statute, of course, refers to both uh, uh, feet first and vertex deliveries. Mm -hmm. uh, how common is the vertex delivery? I'm um, not and, very and common. Next? 
Not very common, Your Honor. There, it would occur in circumstances where there's a significant fetal anomaly mm-hmm. um, and some kind of a uh, something called ascites um, or another type of fetal anomaly where there's a distension of the abdomen. Uh, but it's very rare. And, and in, given your arguments as for the safety benefits of the BNX, I, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't understand why they wouldn't also apply to the total delivery of the fetus in a vertex delivery situation. I'm sorry, I don't know if I understand. Well, my understanding the vertex, the, the skull and head are already outside yes. the mother, yeah. and the objection in the in the feet first is that you want fewer instrument passes as yes. much out. But in that case, is it, it, it's not the skull itself that is preventing the delivery of the fetus. Right. So your arguments about why, why the uh, DNX is safer the feet first, wouldn't that apply in, in, in a case of total delivery of the fetus as well? In other words, if you want as much of the fetus intact and out uh-huh. as possible, why wait, uh, stop it halfway? Wouldn't the safety argument suggest delivery of the fetus? Yes, but these are circumstances where the fetus can't be delivered. That's the point, Your Honor, is that the fetus is obstructed. And so the overt act that takes place in the, in the case of a vertex delivery, yeah. what is it, what is, where is the obstruction? The obstruction would come from a distension of the abdomen, usually from a significant fetal anomaly, like ascites, um, which is, this is the serious anomalies, lethal anomalies that I was talking about. And in those circumstances, an overt act would need to be performed that would, in fact, cause fetal demise before the fetus could be, the delivery could be continued. It seems to me that your argument uh, is that there's always a constitutional right to use what the physician think is the safest procedure. No, Your Honor, I think that constitutional I, I, yeah. I uh, inferred that from your, your comments. I don't think so, Your Honor. What, what the court held in Stenberg in applying the appropriate medical judgment standard of Casey was that there had to be a substantial body of medical opinion an objective standard that, in fact, supports the use of that procedure. And that both, that balances concerns against protecting the woman's health with a concern of unfettered discretion, which the court has rejected. So then you think there are instances in which the state can require that a procedure be used, even if it's not the safest procedure? I'm sorry. So then, the opposite. Yeah. the obverse of the proposition I put at first is, must be true, that there are some instances in which the state can prohibit a procedure even if it is the safest procedure. That's true, Your Honor, as long as it didn't pose an undue burden uh, on the woman, which is, you know, certainly the circumstance with the DNE, which is 95 percent of abortions. Can I, can I just follow up on Stenberg that? Ruling. I don't understand that. In the uh, In other words, the fact that it's not the safest procedure does not itself constitute an undue burden? In other words, under Justice Kennedy's hypothetical, he said that the state can uh, uh, prohibit something uh, even if it is the safest procedure. And your answer was, so long as it doesn't pose an undue burden. And I was just following up to say that. So in some circumstances, prohibiting what you regard as the safest procedure does not itself constitute an undue burden. No, I understood Justice Kennedy's uh, question to be, could the state prohibit what it things that are not the safest? And under the Stenberg ruling, although the Court hasn't addressed that question directly, 
under Stenberg, what the Court has said is the Court can ban procedures only where there's not significant medical uh, authority supporting their use as the safest procedure in some circumstances. So perhaps I misunderstood your question. But the Court has has not ever addressed the question, can we ban a procedure that's not the safest? Um, I think the ruling in Stenberg would say, well, there has to be significant medical authority that in some circumstances it is the safest. The alternative argument would be, but if it is the procedure that's used in 95 percent of the cases or a vast majority of the cases and and banning it would thereby uh, deny women the right to get an abortion and be a substantial obstacle in their path of obtaining an abortion, that would be another reason you couldn't ban it. Thank you, Ms. Smith. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, General Clement, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Let me make just a couple of points in rebuttal. I'd like to start with Justice Kennedy's question about whether or not there are going to be alternative methods available to end the pregnancy as a practical matter. And the answer to that is there will always be an alternative available as a practical matter. The alternative will always be the D&E procedure, which the district court in this case called the gold standard. And the best evidence of that, Justice Kennedy, is that their own witnesses, like Dr. Uh, Dr. Chasen, for example, when they set out to perform the DNX procedure, they're only successful about 33 percent of the time. What happens in the other 67 percent of the cases is they actually, even though they tried to perform a DNX, will perform a DNE. And so all of the clinics that provide DNX also necessarily provide DNE because the DNE is what they end up with if they're not able to remove the fetus intact. So in every single case, there are some, you know, the induction procedure has to be done in a hospital. But the DNX and DNE procedures are both equally available in clinics. So no woman, as either a theoretical matter or a practical matter, is going to be denied a safe alternative to end her pregnancy. I wanted to pick up on Justice Souter's question as well. You asked for factual uh, citations in the record on this dispute between us. I think the record is really overwhelmingly on, in our favor. I, I'd point you to Dr. Fitzhugh, who's one of the uh, wit- one of the plaintiffs on this side, 135A. He says that he doesn't try for intact delivery in every case because it would necessitate a second round of dilation, a second round of laminaria. So he doesn't do the second round. He gets dismemberment. Dr. Noor, another one of the plaintiffs, at page 142A, he says the procedure would require greater dilation. And if I could just finish on the citations, Dr. Vibicar, who does dismemberment 100 percent of the time, 148A, all of these are the petition appendix to the district court opinion. Dr. Cranin explains his procedure at 174A to 177A. Thank you. Thank you, General. The case is submitted.